just before the session started, I went over to the bookshop, uh, and because I had my eye on a particular book, so I bought it. It's called The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, written by someone called Meredith Lake. Meredith is actually an ex-EUer. She was in the EU, and she was in the arts faculty, and she's a professional historian. She wrote the history book of the EU. Anyway, she's written this book, just come out recently, The Bible in Australia, um, and she's been in the media, doing all the media rounds, like what secular media, talking about what impact the Bible has in Australia. It's been quite incredible. So I've grabbed that book, which was over on the bookshop, so I'm lo really looking forward to reading that. I probably won't get to read it till the summertime, because I try to read some Christian history at the sort of each sort of holiday, so I'll keep that, put it on my bookshelf and read it at Christmas time. But there's other book, lots of books over there on the bookstall, and the bookstall closes tonight. It will not be there tomorrow, right? So if you're going to go to the bookshop, you have to go tonight, and it won't be there uh, like after question time. Like you're going to need to be quick, and you're going to need to go over there, grab the goodies. So here's three books. We're going to put them up on the screen, I think that I've got here that I just can recommend to you. So the one on the left, actually we start with the one on the right. It's um, a little book, this one called The God Who Speaks Life by another ex-EUer, Andrew Errington. Andrew was here yesterday actually speaking to our postgrad um, faculty because all the postgrad researchers, you know, they don't get as many holidays as you, so they took a day off work at uni to come up here and spend the day with us. And Andrew came up, he's now down in Canberra working in a Bible college there. He's came up and spent the day with them. And he's written this little book. It's really short. So if you're not a massive reader, this is a great, like great size for you, 80 pages. Uh, it's a short introduction to the Christian faith. So this would be, a, and it's got discussion questions at the end of each chapter. It's the sort of thing that you could, if you're sort of a new Christian or you haven't really read much Christian theology before, this would be an excellent way to start. Find a friend, buy a copy each and read it together, one chapter that's super short, and then uh, answer the questions together just to get you thinking. There's, that's my recommendation to you. Here's another one, the one that's over on the left called The Good Life in the Last Days by an AFES worker, so a campus worker down in Tasmania, Mikey Lynch. And the subtitle is Making Choices When the Time is Short. How do you go about making decisions? So this book he's written for Christian university students like you. And he's a great communicator. I think this would be an excellent read. I haven't read it yet, but I know Mikey. And so if it's fully dodgy, that's a great shame. But I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's really, really helpful, and so uh, published by Matthias Media, why don't you grab a copy of that? That would be another great book to discuss together. And the one in the middle, an oldie but a goodie, John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Look, I, I cr maybe foolishly, I don't know, I said once upon a time at an annual conference, you really should not be allowed to graduate from Sydney Uni as a Christian if you have not read this book. You should not be, and, and actually, as I think about it again, I'm sure that's right, actually. <laughs> you should not be allowed to graduate from Sydney University as a Christian if you've not read this book. Now, it's a big book. It is a fantastic exploration of what it means that Jesus died on the cross for us. The chapter that is called the self-substitution of God is worth it alone. This is a fantastic book. 
and I get little uh, text messages every now and then from older ewers saying, hey, by the way, I know I graduated seven years ago, but finally finished the cross of Christ. <laughs> well, that's, that's good for their soul, right? Because John Stott is a fantastic exegete of the Bible. He's now with the Lord Jesus in, in glory, and he uh, just points you back to the Scriptures and really explores how it all works together theologically and what are the pastoral implications, how it changes your life. Anyone actually read this book? Well done. You can graduate. <laughs> the rest of you, get cracking. Read it with a couple of friends and get your way through it. Fantastic. Okay, bookshops tonight. Tonight. Okay. All right, let's start. Let's get into it. On Tuesday night, we looked at how the Holy Spirit is at work in me, in you, as individuals. Last night we looked at how the Holy Spirit is at work in us together as His church, and tonight we're looking at how the Holy Spirit is at work in the world. And we have heaps of interesting and wonderful truths of God to talk about tonight, but I need to start with an apology. As I was filling this talk out today, I realised there were lots of important things to say, but then I'd said last night that we would look at the topic of spiritual warfare as well, and so tonight's talk just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I started getting more and more worried, and I was no longer confident that the wise way forward under God was to try to do everything tonight. But the good news is, I always leave Friday's talk a little bit sparse, so we have more flexibility. So I've moved the spiritual warfare stuff again <laughs> to tomorrow afternoon, where there's actually more room for it. It's all there, ready to go. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry for the change of plan, but with whatever wisdom the Spirit gives as we pray and try to make these sort of decisions, that's what seemed to me the best way for it. And frankly, and here's a little taste of what we'll talk about tomorrow, I don't mind relegating the devil to the bottom of the conference. I'd much prefer to spend time talking about Jesus than give the devil more prominence than he needs. So we will get to it. And there are some very important things to say, but first, we have lots of other great, encouraging and challenging truths from God's Word to talk about tonight. So here we go. How is the Spirit at work in the world today? I'm jumping straight down to point two on page 41. The Spirit's focus in the world today is the person and mission of Jesus. Back on Monday night, we looked at God as Trinity and saw that we must never separate the Spirit from Jesus. The Spirit is always seeking to glorify Jesus as the Son. See this in the New Testament as the Spirit is intimately involved with every aspect of the mission Jesus has received from the Father, especially after Jesus had returned to the Father after his resurrection. Jesus' mission didn't stop then. Jesus' mission continued and continues today through the Spirit. The Spirit is the active agent in every aspect of Jesus' mission from the Father today, to seek and to save the lost, to bring people to saving faith in Jesus so they might experience new life in the Spirit, become a child of God. That's what we're going to explore right now. So, first of all, the Spirit directs Jesus' mission. At different times in the book of Acts, the Spirit is explicitly involved in directing Jesus' mission. So, for example, on your page there, Acts chapter 8, I've got the references, the Spirit tells Philip to go and stay near a particular chariot so that he can share the gospel about Jesus with a particular Ethiopian. 
And then afterwards, the spirit suddenly whisks Philip away, sort of like a Star Trek, sort of your body disappearing and reappearing moment. I, don't, I can't explain it. Or in Acts chapter 10, while Peter is thinking about a vision the Lord gave him, we're told the Spirit tells Peter that three visitors are looking for him downstairs and he should go with them. Or in Acts chapter 13, while the Christians in Antioch are worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit tells them, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he, the Spirit, had called them. And then in Acts chapter 16, we're told the Spirit of Jesus stopped Paul and Timothy from preaching about Jesus in Asia and Bithynia, even though they wanted to. Now, how does the Spirit do these things? Well, we're not told. Sometimes it might have been through a word of prophecy or a vision. Sometimes it might have been through circumstances. But other times we're just not sure. What is clear is that at times it's the Spirit who is explicitly intervening in directing the mission. Mind you, at lots of other times in Acts, the Christians just make whatever seems to them to be wise decisions in the wisdom the Spirit gives. So they're not sitting around waiting passively for the Spirit to talk to this person or that person as uh, they don't know what to do because... Jesus has already told them what to do. They're to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations. They've got Jesus' task. Now they've just got to get on with it, with all the opportunities they have. But then sometimes the Spirit intervenes directly to sort of push them in a particular direction. So the Spirit doesn't, but the Spirit doesn't just direct Jesus' mission. He also empowers and equips Jesus' proclaimers. Next point there. Look at what Jesus promises his disciples while he was still with them from John 14. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Jesus is going to send the Spirit who will help the apostles understand and remember everything that Jesus had told them over the three years of his public ministry so that they can then be his witnesses to the rest of the world. That's the promise he makes. Later in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' resurrection, when he commissions them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, he says, you're about to receive power to fulfill that task through the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And then you can see in the next passage on your page from Acts chapter 2, what happened when they received the Spirit. From verse 4 there in Acts 2, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So filled with the Spirit, they start proclaiming this message about Jesus in different languages. But the empowerment to, of the Spirit to proclaim Jesus is not always in other languages, and it's not limited to just the original 12 apostles either, as the next passage on your page from Acts chapter 4 shows. Now, the Christians at this point in Acts 4 uh, have been commanded by the authorities to stop speaking about Jesus. Notice the prayer they pray when they face opposition to proclaiming Jesus. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of 
of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. The Spirit comes upon all of Jesus' people, and they proclaim Jesus boldly in the face of opposition. Now, proclaiming Jesus in the face of opposition, that's a scary thing to do. But look at Jesus' encouragement to his disciples in Mark 13 there on your page. Jesus says, When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You've got to think carefully about what Jesus is promising there. I don't think that's a promise for every single time you open your mouth as a Christian. It's not an excuse so that you never need to prepare if you're giving a Bible talk at youth group or church. No worries. Just stand up, say whatever God gives you to say. Just roll with the Spirit. Because what's the situation Jesus is addressing here? The reality about being put on trial for your faith is you don't know what the questions will be. There's no way you can fully prepare for it. And that's very stressful. And answering for the Christian faith in front of anti-Christian authorities, that's really different to answering questions from a friend or in front of other Christians, isn't it? It's a public setting. Even if the trial is behind closed doors, it's still a public setting in the sense of Christianity, actually. Jesus is on trial in a way in front of authorities. And in that specific setting, Jesus is saying, don't worry. Just say whatever is given you to say at that time because it is the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And we can see examples of this in the New Testament. In the speech of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, just before he's killed for being a Christian, or in Paul's trials at the end of the book of Acts. So the Spirit empowers and equips us as proclaimers of Jesus' message. But third, the Spirit testified to the authenticity of Jesus' message. Were you intrigued by the passage we just read in Acts 4 where they also prayed that miracles, signs and wonders will keep happening in Jesus' name? What's that about? Why, is that, why do they pray for that? Well, we saw yesterday in Acts chapter 10 how Jesus was renowned as a Holy Spirit-empowered healer. That was certainly what Jesus taught about himself, as you can see from his confrontation with the outright sceptics, the Pharisees, there in Matthew 12, chapter 12. Jesus said, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus did his signs and miracles in the power of the Spirit. And as his chosen authoritative witnesses... The apostles were empowered to do the same sort of signs and wonders in Jesus' name. That is, as those who were authorised to act on his behalf. So you see it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 5, how many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, we read. The doing of signs and wonders seemed to particularly be an apostle thing. 
It was standard for an apostle to do these sorts of signs and wonders as a way of testifying to the authenticity of their testimony about Jesus. So Acts chapter 14 verse 3 is quite helpful here on understanding the point of the signs and wonders. So Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. So you can trust Paul and Barnabas, what they say about Jesus, because God himself testified to the reality of the grace about which they spoke by doing gracious signs and wonders through them. And Paul actually goes on to identify the working of miracles as a mark of a true apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. Now that's not to say that sometimes others aren't empowered by God through the Spirit to do various signs and wonders and healings. There are examples in Acts of Philip and Stephen who weren't apostles doing signs and wonders. And as we saw last night, there is a spiritual gift of healing. Moreover, we have to be careful about signs and wonders because the scriptures tell us that false prophets and false messiahs produce signs and wonders to mislead and deceive people. Matthew chapter 24 or Revelation chapter 13. So a miracle or a supernatural sign is never an indication by itself that the one true God is at work. It always has to be tested against what's actually said in that context about Jesus. The message about Jesus, not the miracle, is primary. But in terms of expectation, there was a particular empowerment from the Spirit to the apostles to do signs and wonders as God's way of saying to the world, these people are the authoritative witnesses to my son Jesus that what they're saying about Jesus is true because they're doing the very same things that he did. So you can believe their testimony about him. All right, let's move on. I'd love to go for a moment to the question of blaspheming the Spirit. I want to deal with this question. It comes up because it's related to Jesus casting out demons. You can see why this question troubles a lot of Christians when we read what it says about it. This is from Mark chapter 3, there on your page. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He, Jesus, has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit, pointing at Jesus. What is this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit that can never be forgiven? Well, it seems to me that blaspheming the Spirit is a settled opposition and rejection of God. A settled opposition to and rejection of God. It works a bit like this. God is at work in Jesus by his Holy Spirit to denounce the genuine work of the Spirit in Jesus such that you actually say, 
yeah, he's doing stuff, but it's not by the power of the one true living God. It's because he's working for the devil. That is so, so opposed to what God is doing in Jesus. So lacking in any faith in who Jesus is. That it is impossible for you to be forgiven. Your settled and unmoving opposition to the work of God in Jesus that has put you against him. And unless you change, there will be no forgiveness for you before the throne of Jesus on that final day when you meet Jesus face to face as God's appointed judge. Graham Cole put it like this. He said, blaspheming the spirit is not an episode, not a moment. Blaspheming the spirit is a way of life. It is the sin of persistent, unrepentant unbelief. It is the sin of persistent, unrepentant unbelief. That's why it can't be forgiven. So Jim Packer makes a point that should bring you some comfort. He says, Christians who fear that they've committed this sin show by their anxiety that they've not actually done so. If you're really stressed, oh, I really hope I haven't blasphemed the Spirit, Jesus. But the fact that you care, the fact that you are looking to Jesus, for that shows that you haven't, right? Because blaspheming the Spirit is settled opposition to Jesus. No, I will not trust him. I do not accept that he is who he claimed to be. And friend, if that's you, do hear what Jesus himself says. Unless you change, you cannot be forgiven. You cannot be forgiven that sin of persistently rejecting him. So we've seen that the Spirit directs Jesus' mission. He empowers the proclaimers and he bore witness to the apostles' testimony through signs and wonders. But let's now shift our focus a bit from the proclaiming of Jesus to hearing the proclamation. The next point, the Spirit brings understanding of Jesus' gospel. This is a really important point. So we're going to have a bit of a closer look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which I've printed out for you and broken it down into paragraphs. But if you grab a pen, you can sort of add a little heading to each paragraph, and I'll help you along. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and my heading for Paul's first paragraph there, from verses 1 to 5, is a weak message and messenger. You might like to write that down. A weak message and messenger. Let me read it to you. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's Paul's message, right? Not impressive words or impressive rhetorical ability. It's just the plain gospel of the crucified Jesus, a message that was foolishness to the Gentile world of its day. Who could believe in a crucified king? Surely a crucified Christ is not really the Christ, the king at all. Then Paul continues, verse 3, And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
Maybe like me, you relate to that. Full of weakness and fear and trembling when you're called on to speak about Jesus to those who are sceptical. Well, here then is, G- is uh, Paul's method. He says, My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. When Paul says there, a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, I think he's referring to the fact that the Corinthians were converted. They came to faith in Jesus through Paul's weak gospel preaching. Despite the implausibility of the Christian message about a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah, despite that seeming really foolish, they responded by putting their faith in Jesus. That's the powerful work of God's Spirit. Then on to verses 6 to 9, next heading. But actually, this message is the wisdom of God. Verse 6, yet among the mature, and he means mature believers, those who've actually accepted the message about Jesus. Among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. So this message of Jesus crucified is the real wisdom of God even though it's not recognised as wisdom in the world's eyes. It's actually God's true wisdom. On then to verses 10 to 13. This wisdom of God is revealed through the Spirit. Revealed through the Spirit. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also, no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. So here we come to the crucial role of the Spirit. It's through the Spirit working in us that God reveals the message about the crucified Jesus to be true wisdom and not crazy mumbo-jumbo. And the analogy Paul draws there, I find astounding. It says there, verses 11 and 12, just as it's our only our own internal spirit that really knows us, that knows our thoughts, our inner reality, so too only the Spirit of God knows God in that sort of way. And we have that Spirit of God in us so that we can understand the things of God, so that we can perceive and grasp exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. Finally then, on to verses 14 to 16, The Spirit makes all the difference. 
Verse 14, those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they themselves are subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The great division is between those who have the Spirit and those who don't. If you do not have the Spirit of God, then you will not accept God's wisdom, which is the message about Jesus and his death. It will seem foolish, naive, nonsensical, because accepting God's word about Jesus as true, that requires spiritual, capital S, spiritual discernment. We find the same truth in other places in the New Testament. You can see it there on your page. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, jumping in at verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't mean, of course, he can't physically say the words, Jesus be cursed, because after all, I just said, Jesus be cursed. I think I've now said it three times. He says, you can't say it and mean it. It's the Spirit at work in you who helps you realize and accept that Jesus is Lord. If you truly have the Spirit of God in you, you won't reject Jesus. So if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you are a spiritual person, capital S, Spirit. You have the Spirit of God in you. You would never have entrusted yourself to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance otherwise. John Calvin, the, ref the uh, reformer from the 17th cent 16th century, he illustrates the Spirit's work like this. Quite like this illustration. He says, Indeed, the Word of God is like the sun shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed, but with no effect among the blind. Now, all of us are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, the Word of God cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through His illumination, makes entry for it. So what we've said is that the Spirit is both the cause and the blessing of faith. You can see my little diagram there. Gordon Fee says, Faith itself, as a work of the Spirit, leads us to receive and experience the Spirit, who also comes through the same faith. Although it does not fit our logical schemes well, the Spirit is thus both the cause and the effect of faith. Right? You put your trust in Jesus, you receive the promised blessing of the Spirit. But you can't put your trust in Jesus unless the Spirit works in you. As Gordon Fee says, that doesn't quite fit our logical process, does it? The logical categories. But then maybe what we're trying to do here is actually, we're trying to pull apart theologically what is actually all welded together in our experience. We come to faith in Jesus and are born again and the Spirit takes up residence within us in one great, grace-filled moment of spirit-empowered action. 
And the fact that it's all the work of the Spirit, that stops us becoming proud. Because it's all God's gracious, undeserved work in us. One Christian writer put it like this, We respond to God for ourselves, that's true, but never by ourselves. We respond to God for ourselves, but never by ourselves. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might be a little concerned. You might have a question, go, well, hang on, I haven't put my faith in Jesus, and you're saying that I... I won't put my faith in Jesus unless the Spirit comes into me and sort of helps me do it. And I'm saying, yes, that's true. That is true. But what was was Jesus' promise? Jesus' promise was, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more with your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Ask Him. You want to believe? You want to put your faith in Jesus? You you want to become a Christian? Then ask Him for your spirit. Lord, help me believe. He will answer that prayer. It does make me remember a story which I wasn't planning to tell you, but I'll tell you anyway, because it's, it's Thursday night. Um, I used to go to church with a guy, lovely, lovely Christian guy. Became a Christian when he was probably about 20. Uh, he was, this is in the outer western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, he was rough as guts, as the saying goes. He was just, like, he just had had a tough 20 years of life. Not highly educated like you lot, just, yeah. Anyway, he became a Christian. The way he became a Christian was, um, I think it was his cousin, uh, his older cousin, or maybe she was just a family friend, I can't quite remember the details, but she was a believer, came from similar sorts of rough background, And she'd been telling him, look, mate, you just need to become a Christian. Your life's a mess. You just need to become a Christian. (laughs) That'll that'll get it sorted. Like, that'll get your life on the right track. She's absolutely right. And eventually he he decided, okay, I'll become a Christian. And they were standing in her backyard near the the hill's hoist clothesline, standing there. And he prayed and 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 said, Jesus, I want to become a Christian. So they prayed, and then he sort of looked up and said, I don't feel anything. Nothing's happened. She said, well, you're not praying right. Just pray it and mean it. Okay. So he prayed it, and he meant it. And he has had a sudden experience of just the grace of God. And he knew God's love for him in that moment. If you, if you want it, then pray that God would give it to you. Pray he would give you his spirit. 
so you might put your trust every day in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the Spirit is doing in the world. He's bringing glory to Jesus by directing Jesus' mission and empowering and equipping us to participate in Jesus' mission. And he's working in people to bring them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. The Spirit is thoroughly involved, isn't he, in every single step of Jesus' mission from the Father to save the world. That's what the Spirit is doing in the world. And to God's glory, every semester at Sydney Uni, and this is only because of God, we see the effects of the Spirit doing His work as a, as a few more students become Christians. Not heaps. Just a small but steady stream of students finding new life in Jesus each semester. And it would not happen except for the kind, gracious work of the Spirit, right? It will just stop. Praise God, I heard of somebody this morning who has become a new follower of Jesus here amongst us tonight. Isn't that great? But just imagine if instead of somewhere between 20 to 30 new Christians, by God's grace, that we see each year, imagine if we saw 100 students each year come to Saving Faith. Imagine that. Or 200 Imagine if the Spirit moved mightily during festival this semester and then during the rest of second semester and we saw a thousand Sydney Uni students come to faith in Christ in semester two. Could that happen? Well, yes, it could. Remember Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost? Luke tells us that first day about 3,000 came to faith in Jesus that day. And we're told the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. 3,000 in one day. Can he do it? Yes, certainly he has. And there have been other times and places over the years where large numbers of people have become Christians in very short periods of time. It's what Jonathan Edwards, who was a Christian pastor writing way back in the 18th century, what he called the surprising work of God, spirit-empowered revival. One of the most well-known occasions over the last couple of hundred years of revival is the one witnessed by Jonathan Edwards and what he wrote about, and it's known as the First Great Awakening. And it's what Jonathan Edwards described as a wonderful effusion or pouring out of God's Spirit. Now, if you've never read Jonathan Edwards' account of the revival in America, it's called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. You really ought to. It's tremendously encouraging. Edwards was the pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the US, in the 1730s, in a, a town of about... 300 families, 300 families, sorry, a town of about 200 families, got that wrong, 200 families. Let me read, I'm just going to, just sit back for a moment, I'm just going to read you a bit of his account, just relax. This is what he says, I'll resist trying to do an American accent from the 1730s, because I don't know what that would sound like anyway. He says, and then it was, in the latter part of December that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work among us. 
And there were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were to all appearances savingly converted. And some of them wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. Presently upon this, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and of all ages. The noise amongst the dry bones, you get that reference now, right? You've been doing Ezekiel, the dry bones, right? The noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk, except about spiritual and eternal things, was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies upon all occasions was upon these things only, except so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. Other discourse than of the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. Did you see the football man? I don't want to talk about the football man. There was scarce, he keeps going, there was scarcely a person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, and those who had been disposed to think and speak lightly of vital and exper- experiential religion, were now considered, were, sorry, were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. From day to day, for many months together, might be seen evident instances of sinners brought out of darkness into marvellous light and delivered out of a horrible pit and from the miry clay and set upon a rock with a new song of praise to God in their mouths. I am far from pretending to be able to determine how many have lately been the subjects of such mercy. But if I may be allowed to declare anything that appears to me probable in a thing of this nature, I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought home to Christ in this town in the space of half a year. 300 people out of just 200 families in six months. And it wasn't limited to Northampton, Edwards records. There were many instances of persons who came from abroad on visits or on business who had not long been here before, to all appearances, they were savingly wrought upon and partook of that shower of divine blessing which God rained down here and went home rejoicing till at length the same work began evidently to appear and prevail in several other towns in the country. Because what happened in Northampton there was not isolated. Almost simultaneously, and there were revival breaking out in other places, including actually in England and in Scotland and Wales. It wasn't just at that time. There have been revivals in many different times and places. The so-called East Africa revival lasted 30 years and saw many thousands and thousands saved. Now, at one level, there's nothing special about revival, One historian of the East Africa revival, I think helpfully put it like this, revival is the normal work of God, but happening with unusual intensity. Because it's the normal work of God to bring people to saving faith in Jesus. It's just 
happening with unusual intensity. So here's my question. Could we see that happen here in Sydney? Could we see it happen at Sydney Uni or in our churches? I'm going to leave you to reflect on that question just for a moment. And while you do, we're going to stand and sing, and then we're going to come back and try and answer the question. Could we really see revival like that at Sydney Uni, in our churches? The answer has to be yes. Of course we could. We know the heart of God. He doesn't want to see anyone perish under his judgment. He wants to see people take up the gift of spiritual new life in Jesus. We know that at times he has brought large numbers of people to faith in Jesus. So, of course, God could bring revival to Sydney Uni and to our city. Will God do it? We don't know. He hasn't promised it, but we do know his heart and we know his power. So what can we do? Three concrete steps we can take. Pray for revival. Pray for God to pour out, or as Jonathan Edwards said, a wonderful effusion of his spirit into the hearts of hundreds and thousands, so that under the power of the Spirit we might see unusual numbers of people saved. There was a remarkable revival in Melbourne in 1902, when in a four-week period, 8,642 people made a definite profession of having accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour. 8,642 people in a four-week period. That blows your mind a little bit, doesn't it? But its origins actually went back to a group of four people who 13 years earlier had formed the Band of Prayer, they called themselves, which met every Saturday afternoon for two hours or more to pray for revival until it came. Thirteen years of faithful prayer. The man who led that group died before the revival came. Another died in the first week of the 1902 meetings. Literally, he was on his knees when he died. Another woman, convicted of the need to pray, in preparation for the 1902 meetings, organised 1,700 neighbourhood prayer meetings being held every week in Melbourne. 1,700 weekly prayer meetings she organised. Now, prayer is not magical. God is not impressed or manipulated by our prayers. But might it be that, as James says in James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. 
Might it be that the reason we haven't seen revival is because we haven't asked for it? I mean, I do pray every now and then for God to have mercy and bring people to faith and graciously. God has done so today amongst us. But have I persevered in prayer for revival? It's not even that perseverance makes prayer effective, but persevering in prayer does reflect how much I long for it to happen. Maybe God hasn't yet brought revival to Sydney Uni and to our churches and to our city because we still have a long way to go in terms of just getting how much our uni and city needs saving. Because I think when we get the reality of the coming judgment of God and of the second death, when we understand the reality of hell and the astounding love of God in doing all that's necessary to secure salvation for us in Jesus, when you sort of really realize that at new depths, it does make you want to pray. Now, it's not the extent or the intensity of our prayers that this is about. It's our heart. It's whether our passions and longings are those of God to see those he loves and has made receive life in Jesus' name. And knowing the essential work of the Spirit to bring life, surely, surely our heart should issue then in persevering prayer. So you're feeling inspired to organise 1,700 prayer meetings across the campus every week. Well, just a word of wisdom before you organise all those prayer meetings. And this is a bit scary. When revival comes, it usually begins with a revival or a renewal inside the church, the Christian community, before it sees non-Christians coming to faith. In both the Great Awakening and the East Africa revivals, there was a great conviction of sin within the Christian community. And in East Africa revival, it showed itself in public confession of sin. People would stand up and confess all sorts of secret sins which they'd never told anyone. Now that makes sense when we remember what the Spirit does in individual Christians. The Spirit doesn't just make you bold to proclaim Jesus. He convicts you of your sin because he's, at, he's doing Jesus' work. He's at Jesus' mission, which is not just to see you become a Christian, but to grow you into the likeness of Jesus. So he prompts you to repent, to want to kill off your sin. He works in you to want to cultivate the Spirit's fruit in your life. That's what the Spirit does. And people have observed in revival that it often starts with a greater awareness and conviction of sin amongst God's people that consequently then there is a deeper appreciation of God's grace in the cross of Jesus amongst God's people, and that that then produces a more mature joy and passion for God, and that then shows itself in bold omission and gospel outreach. I'm struck anew by how much I fall short of who Jesus calls me to be, I reach out to him, grab hold of his mercy. I rejoice in his saving grace. And I want to tell other people about it. So I just want to ask you, before we get too gung-ho about praying for revival, 
Are you really ready for spirit-empowered revival? Because spirit-empowered revival starts with us here together. Are we ready to see him do that work in us, in me, in you? To radically conform us to the image of Jesus. To drag us to our knees in confession of our failings and our longing for his mercy and in joy and proclamation. Are you eager for that, for that whole package? Do you long for that? What secret sins might he want you to cut off, to kill? Nine years ago was the last time we did an EU annual conference on the Holy Spirit. And it was at this very point, talking about revival, that I said this. I'm going to quote to you what I said nine years ago. I said, will you pray for revival in our city, for a wonderful effusion of his spirit at Sydney Uni. Will you commit to that? Will I do that? Well, I'm saying to you now, yes, I will. I'm committing myself to pray persistently for revival at Sydney Uni. That's what I said, but I did not do it. I made that commitment deliberately, with good intentions, but sisters and brothers, I didn't do it. And that moment, that pledge that I made, that has been in my mind for nine years. I didn't forget about it. I said I would do it, but I persisted in not doing it. It has been a persistent sin over nine years. And I'm being honest with you here. It's part of a bigger hard-heartedness in me when it comes to prayer. I know what the Lord says, that we're to devote ourselves to prayer. And I've not done that. And that is not okay. My prayers are reactionary narrow, and at times they have been barely present, squeezed out by everything else I have chosen to do instead. Prayer has not been a priority. And that is not okay, since God tells the leaders that he's appointed to set an example for the rest of his people to follow. I've not done that. Now, confessing my sin to you, that's one thing. It seems right to me to do it since I made the commitment publicly at annual conference nine years ago, even though only a handful of us were here at the time. But what God is really interested in is repentance, changed life. That's what the Spirit is prompting us to do. And like I confessed my sin to you just now, I have confessed it to my Heavenly Father as well, and I've asked Him to help me change, to live differently when it comes to prayer. And in the power of His Spirit, I have started, started to make prayer 
a better priority in my life. I have a long way to go. And I rejoice in the forgiveness that he freely gives us when we come to Jesus in faith. We can't pray for revival unless we're willing for him to start with us. God's not just interested in evangelism. Father, Son and Spirit are working together, not just to save the lost, but to call and purify a people who belong to him, who are eager to do what is good, who are being transformed more and more into Jesus' likeness. You want to see the lost saved? Then beg God to start with you, to start with us. So let's pray, yes, for true revival. And while you're at it, second point, you can pray for boldness. Pray that like those first Christians in Acts 4, we might be filled with the Spirit to speak boldly and lovingly of the Lord Jesus. And third point, don't be passive. Can't just pray for revival and boldness and then sit on your backside and wait for God to zap you with his spirit so that we're transformed into fearless evangelists. That's not how God usually works in us by his spirit. We're to pray for revival in our friends. We pray for boldness and opportunities to talk about Jesus. And when you see that little opportunity open up, you know what I'm talking about. You just go, oh, I could say something now. That's when you say... Okay, Lord, I know I prayed for opportunities. I prayed for boldness. Help me now. And you go for it. You feel weak, yes. But you know he's the one empowering you to, to take that fearful step and actually tell them the news they really need to hear about the Lord Jesus. We don't just sit around and be passive. We move forward with confidence that our Father will answer our prayers for boldness from his spirit as we do his work. So how do we pull all of this together? What's the application of all of this thinking about what the Holy Spirit's doing in the world? Well, it's actually pretty exciting, really. Let's get on with Jesus' mission in the power and gifting of the Spirit. We know what the one true living God is doing in the world. Jesus has told us. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for us, rise again so we can have forgiveness in eternal life, so that we can be born again from the Spirit, be transformed together, more and more into his likeness as we seek to love him and love one another like he does. This is Jesus' great life-giving mission from the Father and this is what the Spirit is doing in and through us as Jesus promised. So, get with the program. It's the mission of God that he's doing in the world and it's going ahead at full steam. And if you're a Christian, you've already been the focus of that mission. Because you've come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now it's time to play your part with the Spirit's help in furthering Jesus' mission to bring salvation and life to the world. It's time to get on with it. I'm going to focus our vision of getting on with Jesus' mission into four key life moments under, under two headings there on your page. The first heading is getting on with Jesus' mission here and now. Going to flash some things up on the screen. First of all, let's think about the marginalised and vulnerable in our society. 
I've heard this week that one of the EU's foci for the year is sacrificial love for the marginalised and vulnerable through gospel-driven proclamation and action. Let's think a bit for a moment about how this fits with Jesus' mission. I do sometimes hear Christians claim that God has a preferential heart for the poor. Have you ever heard that? A preferential heart for the poor. That he has a particular love for the marginalised and vulnerable. I'm not sure that's a right reading of the Bible. I think what God reveals to us in the Bible is that he loves all his creatures, all the people he has made. He sent his his son to die for the sins of all the world. There's the proof, the demonstration of the extent of his love. But what I do see in the scripture is that God is not prejudicial in his love like we often are. See, we find it easy to love those who are like us, those who share the same culture, who share the same advantages or similar life experience. That's understandable, right? Of course, it's easier to love people with whom you have lots in common. But God is not prejudicial like that in his love. He loves all people equally. And so he has to keep reminding us, as his people, to love those that society has dismissed. Because we easily slip into dismissing them as well. It's easy to get self-focused and neglect the poor, the widow, the ones without family, the ones from a different culture, the refugees, the ones in particular need. God doesn't love those people more. He just doesn't forget them or neglect them like we so often do. So he has to remind us explicitly and repeatedly, make sure you love them too. Because God loves them. And that love for the marginalised and vulnerable is not restricted to the family of believers. Of course, we're to look after the poor, the marginalised, the vulnerable in the Christian community. How could we be a community of love if we didn't? But the point of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is that loving your neighbour is not restricted to loving those within the people of God. We're to love all those around us, to seek to do good to all, And of course, especially to those within the household of faith. And that love that we show, like all love, has to be to the whole person. I love you with my words and my actions. The Bible makes it clear that to love somebody with words but ignore their physical or other needs, that's not real love. We are whole beings, spiritual, physical, emotional, relational. The same way that if I tend to your physical needs or your emotional needs, but ignore your spiritual needs, if I don't speak the life-giving words of Jesus to you, I've not really loved you. So we seek to love all people who the Lord brings into our paths. We seek to love them sacrificially because that's what the cross teaches us about real love. It's sacrificial. We love them sacrificially, both inside and outside the community of faith, with gospel-driven proclamation and action. But it is true that because of our sin, our selfishness, maybe even our fear, we can fall into that same prejudice of wider society and neglect to love the marginalised and vulnerable in the wider community. So we do need to hear God's reminder to not be like the world that writes off those people in loveless selfishness. Let's not be prejudicial in our love for the lost. Maybe we need to hear that challenge too, to remember particularly 
the marginalised and vulnerable in the wider society. They too need the life-giving gospel of God's grace. And I think the EU is helpfully pushing us to think about that aspect of Jesus' mission this year. Well, second, under the here and now, let's think specifically about Sydney Uni campus. You might realise Sydney Uni is going through a rapid expansion. It's not just about the massive building campaign that we all see on campus at the moment, it's about the number of students. For many, many years, uh, Sydney Uni had around somewhere between 30,000 and 45,000 students enrolled. Then that expanded fairly recently to 50-something thousand students just a few years ago. This year, it's now at 61,000 students and they are on track to reach 70-something thousand students by 2020 or soon after. It is a really rapid growth of the number of students at Sydney Uni. Every year, there's more and more students enrolled. Jesus' mission field is rapidly increasing right in our midst. Though over the last couple of years, as that expansion has started to take off, the EU has not really increased in size. The EU has stayed about the same size over the last five to six years, whilst the uni has really grown. So proportionally, we're a smaller part of the uni because the field, the paddock in which God has placed us, has suddenly expanded. So as we head into next week, the beginning of semester two, how will you be getting on with Jesus' mission in the power of the Spirit? Week three, of course, is festival. I hope you're excited about what that might mean for your friends this semester. Get praying for revival in you and in them. Get praying for boldness, that as the Lord opens up the opportunities, you would speak honestly and clearly and lovingly about the Lord Jesus. And let's get off our backsides and not be passive. Organise a festival opportunity for your non-Christian friends. You know them. You know what they're interested in. Organise something that they'll want to come to, which fits with their interests and where they can hear the gospel of Jesus. They might become a Christian because God is at work by His Spirit through His Word. Invite them to the centralised festival opportunities at EU public meetings. This is a really concrete way for us to get on with Jesus' mission together in the power and gifting of his spirit this semester. So let's get praying and planning and praying and inviting and praying and praying and praying and praying. But as I come to the end, I want to lift your eyes further than just the here and now. I want you to think about getting on with Jesus' mission in the power and gifting of his spirit for the long term, beyond Sydney Uni, to the whole of God's world. First of all, let me talk about those less reached and less resourced. One of the really significant decisions you will make in the next five to six years will be where you're going to work and live when you graduate. All right, think about that for a moment. Where are you going to work and live? You will have to make a decision about that in the next five to six years. You'll say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just in first year and I'm doing a double degree and I'll do honours, that takes me to six, and then I'm going to do a PhD, so that's at least another. Well, actually, you do need to make a decision about where you would do a PhD. And doing a PhD is basically like having a job. You get four weeks a year and you get paid, and like, 
four weeks holiday a year, not four weeks work, but four weeks holiday a year. So actually you will have to make a decision actually about where you will work. Don't. This is one of the really significant decisions you will make in the next five or six years. Where are you going to work and live when you finish your undergraduate degree? In terms of Jesus' mission to the world, those decisions about where you will work and live are more significant than you probably realise. You remember that panel interview we saw last night with the EU graduates where Mick, who was at the end here, had done some research to find out how EU graduates were using their gifts in word ministry and a large percentage of a large percentage of them were not using the training and experience they received in the EU not because they didn't have time or energy, but because their church was so well-resourced, there was no need for them to use it. My heart just sank. <laughs> what a tragic situation when there's a world that needs to know Jesus. When there's a world of less-reached people and less-resourced churches who could be so strengthened by them using the gifts that God's given them for the common good of his kingdom. And it's because of where they decided to work and live. Because if you don't stop to think about it, this is how you will make decisions. I need to get a good job. That is a job with a strong company or in a good school or one that will lay a good foundation for the rest of my career. That'll be a stepping stone, you know, to something better down the track. When I've got the job, then I'll work out somewhere to live, preferably close to where I'm working, and then I'll find a church to be part of near where I'm living. And I'll probably just go to whichever is the biggest church that teaches the Bible. I want to go to a church that teaches the Bible, and if there's a few of them, I'll pick the biggest one, because if it's big, that means good things are happening there, and there won't be much pressure on me to do too much. That's the way you'll make decisions. I'm not trying to be rude. I've just seen hundreds of EU graduates make decisions that way over the years. I'd like to ask you just gently in love, why are you making decisions in that order? Why is it work, home, church? Is that what radical self-sacrificial commitment to Jesus' mission in the power of the Spirit looks like? What happens if you flip the whole process? What happens if we go, where's a church in which I could be a really good steward of the gifts God has given me for the building of his people? Where's a place that's less reached with the gospel or where the church is less resourced with gospel-trained people? Start with that question. Just last night, I was chatting over supper with a church pastor and his wife from Southwest Sydney, who came along to Supporters Night, who was here with us last night. I was just chatting over supper, and he said, they, meaning you, they have no idea of how much a difference one person would make in a church like ours. Just one or two people coming in with the Bible teaching and training from the EU and a mature faith, that makes a massive difference to the church. He was talking about you. It doesn't mean church life will be easy, it might be hard work, and it's not glamorous, but it's what the Spirit has equipped us to do. And then once you've found a less reached place or a less resourced church, then find a place nearby to live. 
and then look for a job within a reasonable commute so that you can keep a roof over your head and be generous to God's work. That pastor and his wife who were here last night, I got onto, you know, TripView. I just typed in there, I know where they live, I typed in their train station and I typed in Wynyard, thinking, well, lots of people work in the city, Wynyard. 45 minutes. It's a 45-minute commute. Think about it for a moment. How long does it take you door-to-door to get to uni now? It's probably not, I mean, for many people, it may not be that far different, you know? It's already 30 minutes. It's not inconceivable, is it? What would happen if all of us at graduation made decisions in that flipped order? Church, home, work. We would see 600 Sydney Uni Christians flooding out into the less reached, less resourced parts of Sydney and Australia and the world. Imagine the blessing under God that we could be to Jesus' mission in the power of the Spirit. Look, I know it's a big call. I know you're just cruising through life and it's all good. Mum and Dad are looking after it all and you're just like, well, well welcome to adulthood. You need to make a decision in the light of Jesus. Where are you going to live and work and why? Will you commit to prayerfully considering serving the less reached and less resourced? One of our EU foci this year is sacrificial love for the less reached and less resourced through prayerfully considering where to live and work on graduation. We'd love to see everyone prayerfully considering that question of where to live and work on graduation out of love prompted by the Spirit for the less reached, less resourced around the world. And if you say, yes, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to seriously, prayerfully consider that, then to help you, I'd encourage you to make what we call in the EU the LRLR Pledge. You got your book there, turn to page 93, just to show you where it is, page 93. Just flick there, keep yourself awake. It's a commitment, the LRLR Pledge, that you make to yourself before God to prayerfully consider for the next five years going to serve the less reached and less resourced in cross-cultural Sydney, the rest of Australia or overseas. It's five years deliberately because we know that you'll have to make a decision sometime in the next five years about that. And to help you start to work through that consideration, you also commit to doing something, and it could be anything, to serve the LRLR in the next 12 months. That could, it could be as simple as just coming along to EU's Next Steps one-day conference on Saturday the 15th of September, the end of week seven, where we'll spend the day, just one day, thinking and praying together about how to serve and love the LRLR. Or go to an EU mission at the end of the year to an LRLR church. More information on page 99 of your book. Or get involved with EU Focus on campus or Cosmin. Now, if you think, okay, it's a, it's a bit out there, but I'm up for seriously, prayerfully considering where I should live and work to serve the LRLR, make the pledge. Make the pledge if you're serious to con- about considering it, prayerfully considering. Fill out page 93, drop it in the LRLR box in the Act Now space tonight, 
or you can fill in the pledge online. The info is there on page 93. Make the pledge. It's a really helpful way of just saying, okay, I will seriously, prayerfully consider this for the next five years and I will just do something in the next 12 months. But I have one final challenge for you as we think about getting on with Jesus' mission in the power and gifting of the Spirit. It's good to think about reshaping where we'll live and work around Jesus' mission. But here's my final question for you. But will you give up your job? Will you give up your profession in entirety for the sake of Jesus' mission? Would you give up paid work as a nurse or an engineer, a public servant, a lawyer, a teacher, a pharmacist, a vet, anything else? Will you give up paid work to do gospel work for Jesus and his mission? Jesus told his disciples, the fields are ripe, ready for harvest, but he also said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers, that is, more people to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Now, the Lord can raise up workers for his global harvest field from wherever he wants, but if he has graciously chosen to give you all this teaching and training, more teaching and training from his word and a greater depth than most pastors in the developing world ever receive, might he not be seeking to raise up workers for his global harvest field from right here amongst us here tonight? Because I know you don't realise it, but just by being involved in the EU over a period of time, you are now some of the most gospel-resourced people on the planet today. You really are. What will sacrificial love for Jesus and the lost and Jesus' mission to save them, to grow his church, what would that look like for you? Will you give up your profession if God opened a way for you to serve him as a gospel worker? I mean, mum and dad would not be happy. Your peers at uni will say you're a fool. It'll mean less money, less worldly security, more spiritual responsibility before the Lord, a greater judgment. It'll mean greater opportunities, though, to use the gifts of the Spirit for the growth of God's kingdom. It'll mean the joy of using all of your time to sow the gospel of Jesus into people's lives to see them come to faith and salvation and maturity in Christ. Now, I'm not asking you, are you willing to consider it? I'm, I'm asking something more. I'm saying, are you keen for it? Is that what you really want to do? It is a bigger call than just serving the LRLR, which is still a big call. This is like LRLR plus or something. It's saying, I want to give up my profession as well and commit to doing gospel work instead of paid work. Now, just because you want to do it doesn't mean that you should do it. 
You have to be a person of mature faith, of godly character, of the right gifting, who has a solid understanding of the faith. You probably need to go and work for a few years first to sort yourself out, to grow up a bit more, to work out how to be a passionate follower of Jesus out in the world. You should definitely do some sort of full-time ministry traineeship, like the Howie program, to see whether it's something that God has really equipped you for and which then sits well with you as a person, as the person God has made you to be. And you'll need to get more Bible training so that you can grow in your own knowledge and love of God and teach it to others. It's a long road. And you have to be humble enough and ready to hear God say to you through his people, it's great that you're keen, but maybe it's not right for you. That takes real maturity and humility. But given all that, given all the caveats, all the unknowns, all the opportunities that are actually out there, all the need for gospel work around the world we've been hearing about from our LRLR workers all week, who here for Jesus and his mission to save the world, who here tonight will say, yes, I'm keen, send me Lord? Who will do it? It's a non-rhetorical question. I want you, if you're willing, if you're keen, to stand up in a moment and say, send me, Lord. This is not just willing to consider. To say, send me, Lord. So we're going to bow our heads. And if you're convicted by God's Spirit that giving up your profession and serving Him as a gospel worker is something you're keen to do, then stand up and pray, send me, Lord. Let's bow our heads. We pray, Lord Jesus, as you've told us, that you would send out more workers into your harvest field. And we pray right now, Father, that you might raise up some from amongst us tonight. If you're standing, then I invite you to say in your own time, send me, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for moving by your spirit and under the conviction of your word amongst our brothers and sisters here tonight standing. Lord, we have heard their prayer and we know you have heard it. Please, Father, grant them all wisdom and discernment 
as they offer themselves now in your service to give up their professions and serve you in this particular way as gospel workers. Surround them with wise counsellors that they might truly know under your gracious hand what is the best way for them to serve you in light of all of the opportunities and the needs around your world. We commit them and the decisions they have made tonight to you for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. If you have indeed prayed tonight, send me, Lord, then I... I'd love if we can help you start working out that issue of discernment. Um, so here is a mobile number that you can text. Uh, it's Matt Moffat's mobile number. <laughs> well, I figured you wanted to know. Um, he's a senior staff worker here uh, with the EU. If, if you stood up and prayed that tonight, then... Text Matt and say, send me, so he knows what it's about. <laughs> and please put your full name in there and your EU faculty. And then Matt will collate all of that and we'll, we'll aim to meet up with you this semester to start that process, which is done amongst God's people of discernment. Let me finish. We know what the one true living God is doing in the world in his Son and through his Spirit. He's bringing people to saving faith and growing them to maturity in him. We've talked about the different ways we might do that and commit to that as his people. So I'm going to close with prayer that we will commit all of these decisions and thoughts to our one true living God. O breath of life, Come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. Then, in your tenderness, remake us. Revive, restore. For this we plead. O breath of love, come breathe within us, renewing thought and will and heart. Come, love of Christ, afresh to win us. Revive your church in every part. Revive us, Lord. Is zeal abating while harvest fields are vast and white? Revive us, Lord. The world is waiting. Equip your church to spread the light. Amen.